You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 89 of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and joining me this week for a very special episode is Daniel Aaron Dilger. Hey, Dan. Hi. Welcome to uh, October. No kidding. <laughs> well, we're really glad to have you here. And I, I just want to start off by letting all of our listeners know that even though the weather's cooling down, the deals are heating up, and it's possible to save anywhere from $30 to $100 on 2016 12-inch MacBooks, or get a $50 iTunes gift card for only $42.50. And uh, also Roxio Toast 15 Titanium, which is a software that you can use to create and burn DVDs and CDs, is, uh, is marked down to $49 for a limited time. So these discounts are available through B&H, an authorized Apple reseller, and they also offer free expedited shipping on Macs, and they don't collect sales tax on orders shipped outside of New York State. So if you wanted to get a, a 2016 12-inch MacBook, now is the time, and we'll have that link in the show notes. So Dan, a lot's happened in the past week, uh, especially with competing companies, compete, companies that compete with Apple and things like that. Um, one of the things that I'm interested in, and and I know I might be alone in this, is voice assistants. You know, I, I think a lot about Siri. I think a lot about Amazon Alexa. I think about um, many of these kinds of devices and services. And Google announced one. And, and the founders that founded Siri before Apple purchased it have, have another one that just got purchased. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What's going on with uh, with that one? Uh, well, Samsung, yeah, bought them, and it, they kind of needed to be bought because if you if you look at the opportunity for a, a technology package like that or an app, uh, remember, Siri started out on the App Store, but almost nobody knew of it or heard of it because really, to have a functional voice assistant like that, you have to have it built into your platform. There's a lot of things that the operating system is not going to allow a voice app to do. So it really requires deep integration with a hardware device of some kind. I see that with Amazon's um, uh, Alexa. They, bun- they basically paired it into a hardware device. And Google's doing the same thing um, with their home. And also they've deeply integrated their own voice assistants into uh, their version of Android. And uh, Microsoft is doing that as well. So for, for Vue by itself... It, it's not really um, able to compete with existing platforms that are so deeply integrated with their competitor. So if you look at the, the options for review to sell it to, there aren't very many. I mean, they could try to sell themselves to a, a, one of these companies in China. But Samsung is the only real Android rival that has a significant um, ability to popularize something. Smaller Android uh, licensees can't really uh, deliver very much. And, and we've seen that when they've tried to create something innovative and um, distinctive for their own devices. It, there's just not, um, there's not enough critical mass to make it stick. And Samsung has done that a little bit with TouchWiz and, and some of their own uh, apps that are trying to replace Google. And so Google and Samsung are kind of wrestling over this thing. So this is like the next step of Samsung taking the position of, hey, we're going to have our own services that are distinct from what Google's offering, and we're going to 
basically make Samsung Galaxy the brand instead of Android. And we've seen that happening for a couple of years now. Now, does this represent a missed opportunity for Apple to reacquire the team and their, their new talent, their new product, after having made Siri and then left Apple? Well, you'd think of all the companies that, that knew what this company is trying to do and what their objectives are. Apple would probably be you know, the, have the clearest idea because they, these people were working at Apple initially when they were working on the Siri team. And the reason that they left, um, you know, I don't know all the details, but clearly the, uh, the strategic break between the two is enough to where they thought they could do something interesting outside. And we've seen that before where, where groups have left Apple or other companies. And sometimes it's you know somewhat successful. Sometimes, I mean, often it's not. Often the, the companies that leave Apple, uh, even, you know, even Steve Jobs, he left Apple and started his own thing. And it was much more difficult for him to make any impact as a solo kind of act. And so with Vive, um, they're really positioning themselves as doing a lot of other things. And the, the commentary that I've seen about it is when Steve Jobs picked up Siri, he had a very kind of um, limited idea of what he wanted to deliver with it. It wasn't like, let's make it work with everything and have a whole you know, complex platform of third-party integration. It was, let's deliver a feature that will sell iPhones. And so yeah. you, can, you can see why the team would want to um, go outside and deliver a broader idea of what they could do. Yeah, well, the, the original Siri, before it, it became an Apple product, was a lot more aware of, of other services. It, it knew Yelp, it knew Uber, it knew uh, a wide range of, of other services, and you could use it, you could say at the time, you know, call me an Uber, and it would bring you an Uber. You could say, I need an Uber to some other place, and it would, it would pick the place out of Yelp and get the address and directions and, and arrange that for you at the time. And this is back in the days where we were on an iPhone 3GS, and it was able to do this kind of thing. And they were using webhooks and all these other kinds of things that you, you had to do because they were in the app sandbox to be able to right. get to these other services. So I, I think my understanding is, is that the team left because they saw their, you know, their baby being crippled, basically. It, you know, it had all of these abilities, and then all of a sudden all of the abilities were taken away. And it's taken us years to get back to that point where iOS 10 now allows for Siri to integrate with other things. Well, you, there's, there's a lot of uh, parallel examples of that in other features, especially on Android. For example, um, keyboards. Android had third-party keyboards long before iOS did. Um, and um, other kind of plug-in architectures, plugins for web browsers on, on desktop platforms, those didn't make it to iOS. And the reason they didn't was because of security and privacy. Because mm -hmm. there were a lot of um, these plug-in architectures, including Siri, that were making connections to outside things, and if you just incorporate that into the operating system, suddenly there's an immense amount of um, inside doors that it makes a very complex security uh, problem to patch and to secure. And what you've seen from Apple over the last several years, I think starting in 2014, when they introduced the idea of app extensions, is creating a, a secure way to allow applications or system applications like Maps to connect to outside services in a way that was useful but wasn't a security hole. It was a known security um, interface. And so they've done it with, you know, we've talked about this in, in every generation of iOS since. They've added new 
places where you can attach these app extensions to extend now maps, and now you can extend Intense and Siri. And the fact that that wasn't done sooner is quite clearly related to that security issue. So Apple is creating the mechanism to securely do it before they launch it. And that's also kind of similar to how Apple came, how Apple delivered uh, third-party apps because other people were saying, oh, we can do this ourselves. We can you know, basically crack the security on the iPhone and, and pump apps into it. But that creates so many security holes that you aren't even obvious how to fix. So Apple waited until they added a lot more security infrastructure into iOS before even they delivered maps or apps on the second year. Yeah. So this, uh, this is Vive Assistant. It was uh, made by Dag Kitlaus, Adam Chair, and Chris Brigham. And Kitlaus has, has said that his goal is for ubiquity. He, he wants this assistant to be hardware and platform agnostic, allowing you to use it no matter where you are, what device you're using, what operating system is involved. And that by going with Samsung, they think they can reach that ubiquity. Um, you know, a lot of people are looking at this from the standpoint of integrating it into smartphones and integrating it into a uh, standalone speaker the way that Amazon and Google now have done and the way that, that Apple is rumored to be doing. But, you know, one, one of the things that I'm wondering about is, is it going to get integrated into all of the Samsung televisions? Is it going to get integrated into Samsung smart things and tie that together with everything else? You know, there, there's a bunch of different directions this could go, and it's, it kind of depends upon how committed Samsung are to it. Well, yeah, kind of every company, especially startups, want to see their software used everywhere. And that's even Apple's thing is, you know, they tell their people, it's like, we want to have the best product and deliver it so that everybody can have access to this technology kind of thing. Um, but the reality is you have to decide what you're going to actually deliver. And just having a goal of being everywhere is not very good. Even Microsoft, when they were at the top of their game, you know, they had this whole... Windows Everywhere strategy that didn't work. They just, it was, even for Microsoft, they controlled everything and they could not put Windows Everywhere. So that tells you something about a small company that's releasing a competitor to voice assistants. You know, they're trying to find a platform. There aren't any platforms available apart from Samsung. So I don't think it's really a strategic decision to be with Samsung. I think it's their only decision. Okay. And as far as, you know, Samsung is trying to have, they have their own, uh, Linux-based operating system that they're kind of have been threatening Google to use instead of Android, and they've started putting it on their own. Yeah, their own smartwatches for a couple of years now. They've launched a couple of phones in kind of smaller releases, but they've shown that it's possible. I mean, it's basically a knockoff of Android, and so with more of their own control over the the features that people think they need, you know, a Siri type feature, they now have that under their own development so that if they go to another, their own um, non-Android operating system, they can port it over. So it makes sense for Samsung to do that. In terms of, you know, Samsung also makes a lot of other products. They make all kinds of um, major appliances and, you know, they make everything from washing machines that explode <laughs> to uh, toilet seats. You know, they have these bidet toilet seats that are do really the, Do those explode too? Electronic, I hope not. <laughs> I mean, I presume that the seat is heated. Do they catch fire? <laughs> that, uh, well, it depends on if it's battery operated, I suppose. Mm. But, but you can you can sort of imagine how you could put voice control and all this stuff. But really, that's more of a uh, application for something like HomeKit, home integration, which plugs into Siri, but it isn't uh, part of Siri, and it shouldn't be. It should be on its own and, and work in it 
in the best way it can and have serious an interface for that with intents. Well, so one of the questions then is, is does Samsung have a roadmap for all of this? What, what do we think that looks like? I've seen some of Samsung's roadmaps before. I mean, when they present it to investors or um, some of their stuff to the press, the most recent one that I really detailed, um, the way they expressed things was very, very sort of number oriented. Like this year, we're going to have screens with this resolution. Next year, we're going to have it with twice resolution. And then, you know, in four years, it's going to be twice more. And it's like, you're talking about a cell phone with a 4K screen. What's the purpose of that? And same thing with um, other things that the company makes. They need to sell those things. But they don't really seem to deliver a good sense of what's going to make a good product. It's more just a feature package. And if the market rejects a feature package, then they come back with a different one. So like last year when they came out with the, I believe it was the S6 that they took off features that people like and people complained about it. So this year they put them back on, which is very different from what Apple does. When Apple makes a decision, they very rarely backtrack to say, oh yeah, I guess we'll, we'll change this around. Even though the, the media scrutiny for Apple is, is much more intense. I mean, people just really go on about how this needs to change and that needs to change. And you know, Apple doesn't really respond to that. Apple doesn't say, oh, yes, you're right. We'll, we'll do it like the way you think. We're going to put the head, headphone jack back on now because, you know, it must be a good idea if you're saying it repeatedly. Cool. You know, the, the early days, I, I guess in 2010, 2011, I can recall a time where they backtracked on a decision because it was easy to do the backtrack. There was no great penalty for doing so. And it was a the, – the iPad side switch had been mute. And then it became lock rotation, and there was there was sort of this back and forth about which one should that switch be assigned, and they just kind of punted and made a software choice. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of that's, that's basically a system preference. There's a lot right. Of they, they, they originally they took away mute and made it lock rotation, and then after an outcry, made it available again. But it, you know, that's that's not the kind of of decision that you stand up and, and stake your life on, where the headphone jack because it's a material cost and it's a thing you can't put back easily is one you're staking your future on. Yeah, and it's part of a strategy that relates to a lot of things. I mean, it's not just we're going to get rid of the headphone jack, but it's, it's also we want, we, we think um, moving to wireless audio makes more sense. We're going to keep a jack on there, so you can plug in headphones if you want, but we think most people are going to be moving to, to wireless in the future. And on top of that, Having fewer jacks on it means that it's easier to waterproof. It's easier to put more stuff inside, whether it's mm-hmm. battery or the Taptic engine or uh, whatever they want to do. Um, so it, it's not just a a yes/no decision. Should there be a headphone jack? Which is how you know in Google's presentation of the Pixel, they were like, "Oh yeah, we we have a headphone jack on here." And it's like, "Well, what did you give up for that?" Not you new. Don't, you don't have a lot of these other features that Apple got by getting rid of it. So you're saying you have this headphone jack, but what you're really saying is you didn't put in the effort to do any of the things Apple's done with iPhone 7, whether it's Explore Haptics or um, having water resistance or any of these features that are kind of dependent on. There's also no um, effort to make Bluetooth headphones easier to use than they are. So um, it's kind of strange to emphasize. So yes, we have a headphone jack. Well, the last time yes, that we Google attempted to make Bluetooth easier to use, they they incorporated NFC into it. And yeah, the tap to tap to pair configure. Yeah. 
And I, I have a hard time imagining them working to put NFC into headphones and requiring everyone to do that. I, I don't think that's their game. But let's let's you, you raise a good point about all the things that ha- they didn't put into it. I, I think part of the problem is that many people uh, who aren't you and I gloss over all of the changes in the new iPhone. Oh, it's a new iPhone. Well, what's different about it? Well, it's got a better camera. Oh, it's waterproof. And other than that, they don't think about the haptics. They don't think about barometric vents. They don't think about any of the other things that go into it that explain why the headphone jack came out, right? They're, they're just all focused on the, the easiest to discern things. And otherwise, it's probably about the same. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah. And it, part of it is sort of an echo chamber of anti-marketing. Because you see there's a number of people who just are really working to sidetrack Apple. And so they come up with an idea and they just repeat it over and over and over again. And the headphone jack is the most obvious example of that this year. But things like Bengate and other, you know, the crisis, they give it a cute name. And they really just repeat it to the point where people say, oh, here's a, you know, I've heard of this, you know, terrible crisis and um, is it really a thing? Yeah. It's a, it's a lot like politics, where if you smear your opponent often enough, even if you're saying stuff that's completely insane, if you keep repeating it, then people start to think, oh, yeah, well, there's this controversy where they were called names a lot. You know, they, were, they are getting repeatedly referred to as being crooked or whatever. Um, there must be some reason for it. But, yeah, that's kind of the incessant kind of lie marketing that we see coming out of a lot of these websites. They just pick up something and, and make a big deal about it. And, you know, they're talking a lot about the headphone jack, but like you say, they're not talking about why the headphone jack is not there and how it benefits uh, the design moving forward. Because the headphone jack is not going to be there in 50 years. So should it be there in 20 years? Should it be there in five years? Should it have been gone like two years ago? When is the exact right time for it to leave? Apple seems to have a pretty good idea of, you know, the pros and cons when it's developing something to think. Because Apple isn't trying to push people to do things they don't want to do. They're trying to sell the most hardware they can. Nonsense. And they're trying to move on. Yeah, they're trying to move uh, product. So they're not doing things to piss people off. They're doing things to uh, make a better product in the future. Well, talking about making a better product, I mean, I, I, I go back, I keep coming back to the camera because, first of all, it's, it's one of the primary uses of my phone. It's, it's also one of the primary occupancies. Of, it's, it's one of the primary... Uh, storage eaters of my phone, right? If I look at the uh, the utilization of my phone, right. the largest amount of, of storage space is eaten up by photographs, even if I'm optimizing the photo library. And so there's this, this website called DxOMark, which is put out there by DxO, who also make cameras, and they make an iOS-connected camera. And they rank smartphone cameras and, and also DSLRs and other cameras. And they recently gave a review of the iPhone 7 where they ranked it with a uh, a summary score, an aggregate score of 86. And when they're ranking these things, they're comparing things like exposure, contrast, color, autofocus, texture, noise, artifacts, and, and the flash. And ranking all of those kinds of things to come up with an aggregate score. And so they gave the iPhone 7 an 86. For comparison's sake, the iPhone 6S was an 82, and and so was the uh, 6. So the previous generations of things got the 82. 
most latest one got an 86, and now the Pixel is at the top of their list with an 89. That would lead you to believe that the Pixel has the very best camera, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, that was the marketing line. I mean, I've seen, I've seen the reviews before. They usually come out a month or so after a phone gets released. But in this case, it was a pre-released phone that Google worked with them. So it kind of, kind of gives the appearance of you know, how convenient that you're launching this phone and to not have any criticism of its camera, you're telling us right off the bat that it's the best camera ever and here it's verified by this site and it has a higher number. I mean, I think giving a, a flat number to a, a mobile camera is kind of difficult to do because there's a lot of uh, variance in what makes a good camera. So you could easily make, a, you know, if you want the best possible picture, you could have like what Nokia was selling for a while. They had these Carl Zeiss lenses that were huge. It was basically a, a point-and-shoot camera stuck on the back of the phone. Obviously, if you have a huge lens and a, you know, a huge aperture, a huge sensor, you're going to get a better picture than if you have a mobile camera. But that doesn't necessarily make a great phone to have this huge camera lens on the back of it. So it's an engineering decision. So how do you, how do you take a number and say that overall, this camera phone is the best? What does that even mean? Best at what? Best at making pictures? Best at being a phone? So you know, just from the start, this idea of having a specific number, a relative number that somebody kind of comes up with as a composite, is kind of problematic. But if you look at their website, the pictures that they show from, from the Pixel and comparing it to other phones, including the Samsung Galaxy, they don't make a case for it being a better, better at taking pictures. In fact, they describe it as you know, lost details and didn't, didn't look as good as the other, right. other phones. So, so and yet it's a much higher number. There's an outdoor comparison shot between Pixel and SGS7. Overall, the Pixel did extremely well, I'm quoting, in capturing our natural test images, typically performing as well or better than other flagship models. However, on our greenery test seen below, it didn't perform as well as some of the other flagship phones as it lost details in the shadows. And then they showed the, uh, the HDR feature using the HDR Plus, and sometimes the HDR Plus capability failed to trigger. So they're, it, it's interesting because they're showing all of the flaws in the camera here for all the times that it didn't work well. And they have a couple of shots where it did work great, but then they don't compare where it worked wonderful compared to the other cameras. So, so it's like we're seeing a bunch of bad images from this camera that they're touting as being the best. Yeah, it's a strange review. And that was noted even people commenting on the article. They're saying, well, you're giving examples of it being worse. Do you have any examples of it being better if you're going to give it this high score? You know, but it did seem a little sketchy that you know, they print, I, I, printed this sort of evidence of it being a better camera. I think what happened, and, and this happens a lot, is, is you're trying to write an article and you're trying to put in the pictures that just go with the paragraphs. And I, I almost wonder, and I'm just speculating here, but I almost wonder if they, they really did like the camera, they really loved its images, and so they, they put in the exceptions to what they loved, right? They found all of the bad examples where it didn't quite work and put those in because they were so blown away by it working so well for everything else. So they wrote the article saying, we love this, it's blown away, it's great, and then put in the pictures that show that it didn't work. That would be an easier um, thing to believe if Pixel delivered a variety of um, serious enhancements. If it had better lenses, if it had um, optical image stabilization hardware, if it, had, if it used like the dual lenses of the iPhone 7 Plus. But what Google really emphasizes is that it didn't have a camera bump. In other words, it was a thicker device, 
that didn't have any, you know, large aperture camera lens, didn't use anything novel. Even the flash on it is like the iPhone 6 uh, with, you know, two-element flash instead of the four-element flash that Apple is using. Mm. Uh, when I looked at the iPhone 7, when you were taking pictures with it, I kind of critically looked at all these different features and said, is this really better? Is it better to have four than two? Or is that just like a number? And no, it's like the, the flash is actually brighter and also uh, more lifelike, even when you're in total darkness. It takes, illuminates a scene instead of making it look like blown out. And with other features, the telephoto lens is like, is this really a, a feature that you can get a 2x lens, uh, 2x um, optical zoom? Because it doesn't sound tremendous. But in the phone, you know, when you're actually taking pictures, it is. It's, really, it's quite useful that you can get closer to things that you can't get up, up nearby for taking pictures of animals or details on something on the other side of the fence. So I was able to produce a whole lot of examples of here's why it's better and here's what's different and here's how it compares to the, you know, the, the last phone, which is pretty good. And when I looked at everybody, I mean, a variety of other reviews, I heard a lot of people, starting with Consumer Reports, saying that there was nothing different with the camera and that it took pictures about the same as last year. And I have to think, did you actually take any pictures? Did you look at them? Because it's significantly different. And uh, DxOMark last year, they basically said that the 6S was not that much better than the 6, when, you know, it was also a pretty significant jump in what it could do. Yeah, they scored it exactly the same. Yeah. And so you have to wonder, it's like, what, what does your numbers actually mean? Is it kind of relative to the competition of the moment? Is it on some sort of real scale of, you know, this close to being 100% perfect? So the numbers that they're using don't reflect any sort of, um, it doesn't seem to be useful information to just give a number. Because what does that mean? Does that mean it's that number as a percentage of what else was being sold in 2014 or 2015? Or is it really a, you know, against a, a specific model? And when we look at benchmarks, for example, Geekbench, it's putting a whole bunch of different processors in you know, giving them the same task and having them run it and, and giving a, a, a result that you can compare. And, you know, there's some, there's some ways you can look at that and say, yes, but if the manufacturer makes their device so it's only good at running that benchmark and basically turns off power saving so it's, it's good at running the benchmark, that doesn't necessarily mean anything because when you're actually running a phone, you don't want it to be running at full tilt. You want it to be running at full tilt when you want to do something and then you want it to relax and save the battery when it's just sitting in your pocket. So there's a lot of complexity when you're comparing things in terms of saying, is this a better product or than its peers? But I don't see in the DxO mark that it really offers, um, it, it really doesn't back up its numbers very well from the report that it gave. And it doesn't really even acknowledge the hardware that's on the phone in these two cases. And how much of the review is based on what the camera can do and how much of it is based on uh, software features. Because Google has this um, high-definition software, or um, the HDR Plus, that does, you know, it may be a nice feature, but how much is that, how much of the photo is um, processing it? And, you know, Google also kind of made central to the the launch of the Pixel phones, their cloud services and storage of pictures on, on their server being included. And that's, so that's, that's, that's also a feature, but it's like not a camera feature. Well, no, but it's, it's a part of the total package. You know, when right. you get an iPhone, and, and they, they were not ashamed at all about putting up the, uh, the iOS 
out of storage dialog in the in the presentation. But you, 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 we see this, right? You have five cloud, five gig of iCloud storage, which you rapidly run out of, and you pay for more. And Google happily gives you unlimited storage for your photos and videos for free, right? Yeah, that I mean that they, is they definitely have to because they're trying to sell a hardware device for the same price as an iPhone. Yes. <laughs> so they better throw now, in some stuff for free. <laughs> one one of the features that I did like that they included though is is they are using the gyroscope to stabilize. And that's something that I've been doing with iOS for a couple of years now using uh an app called Hyperlapse by Instagram which allows me to to take video and it uses the feedback from the accelerometer and the gyroscope to stabilize the video. It works surprisingly well. And that they built that into their software load this time is a good thing, I think. But if you compare the results, I, I also like Hyperloop when I've used it sometimes. Uh, if you compare that against the time lapse on the phone, it's much smoother. I mean, you can like walk through a crowd holding it, holding your phone, and Hyperlapse will give you a smooth, it's, it's almost like a steady cam. Whereas if you have, if you use the iOS 10 camera software to do a time lapse, you have to basically have it fixed. Or hold it really still, yeah. Um, or else you can see that there's a lot of motion. But the difference is, it's kind of like optical zoom versus digital zoom. Oh yeah, it's, it's totally enlarging the image and then cropping the edges off. To losing a lot of quality. If you look at a hyperlapse, it's a really low quality thing, and it's kind of geared towards putting on Facebook, which is going to compress it down to terrible anyway. Well, Instagram for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean they both compress a lot of quality out of your videos. Um, but if you're trying to get a clear video, and uh, Hyperloop doesn't really deliver that because it's using motion to crop your picture in real crop time, basically. What yeah. you can also do on something like iMovie, that's how, what reduced motion does, is it basically motion crops your fo- the middle of your video and blows it up, so it makes it smoother. But optical Im- image stabilization does that with hardware, so where it's moving the lens around, so it's focusing the center of action on the full sensor so you end up with better quality and it also it not, it not only works with the gyroscope and motion controls but it also connects to how fast the shutter is opening because if it knows that the um, camera is not being jostled around it knows it can open up the shutter larger for longer and get more light and end up with a better picture in the light and the pixel doesn't have any of that hardware and that's no, not it doesn't. You can really it's, fake in software. It's doing it all in software, pretty much the same way that the Hyperlapse app is doing it. Yeah, and the the only nicety there is that it, they've integrated it directly into the main camera application, which is is handy. But it's um, but as you say, yeah, you get lower quality out of it doing that. Now let's talk a little bit about next year's iPhones. Um, so we saw and Mikey wrote this up, that there's a, a patent on a fingerprint sensor that works through displays. So you can have the, the fingerprint pretty much anywhere in a display structure. And the patent is entitled Capacitive Fingerprint Sensor, including an electrostatic lens. Now, we, we've talked a little bit about the iPhone um, 2017, for lack of a better term, before. Do you think this is something that we're going to see implemented? We don't always see patents get made. Is this one of the ones that's going to deliver? Uh, well, yeah, this is a series of patents that for several years now they've been talking about putting basically other pixels in the display itself. So um, there was patents re- referring to having 
sensor element. So basically the screen is also a camera. It's seeing you as, as you're seeing it. Um, with doing the fingerprint, I mean, the fingerprint scanner is basically a, it's a scanner. It's, a, it's a taking a picture of your finger in real time, real fast. So that's kind of the same idea is having a part of the screen that you could, you could integrate the touch ID type sensor on it. And today with the iPhone 7, that's integrated into the solid state device. So they've taken out the part where it has to move. So they're paving the way for that to eventually happen. But I think it's kind of soon to suggest that that's going to happen next year. Um, you know, if you look at the iPods, how fast the, the click wheel changed. You know, the first one was mechanical. The second one was capacitive touch. And the third one, uh, they changed it even more. Um, but moving from a touch button to an integrated into the screen button surface seems like a pretty rapid jump to make within two generations. I would kind of doubt that that would happen within you know the next year. You, you think there's a longer progression at work here? Um, unless there's some incredible benefit to doing that, if you can change the shape of the phone and, you know, I mean, it could, you know, it, it would make sense that they could do it in one generation if it was necessary, but um, I'm kind of looking to see what the, what would be the real benefit of doing that? Well, you know, what is the benefit to remove the, you know, I've heard people talking about remove the chin, you know, get rid of the whole part of the bottom and have, you have a smaller phone where the screen is kind of the whole front of the device. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that would be facilitated by integrating the touch button into the device and having a taptic engine behind it. So it feels like a button when you press it. But yeah, it's not clear to me. I'm not saying it's not going to happen. I'm just saying, or, or I'm not saying that it's my opinion that it's not going to happen. I'm just saying it, it would be surprising if they move that rapidly to roll out something because there is significant cost involved in ra- radically changing the structure of the phone. Well, that's the rumor. The rumor is that for 2017, and this this comes from uh, Ming-Chi Kuo of KGI Securities, who we've quoted here on this show before. Uh, that the the phone is likely to be a scratch-resistant all-glass finish for both the front and back of the device with uh, stainless steel edges for premium models, aluminum for, for lower models, and that an all-glass casing is not possible currently. Um, a metal frame surrounding is necessary for structural design, uh, but it, but the speculation is that if there's a glass front and a glass back and it's an all-glass thing all the way around, that Integrating the home button into that is is uh, a part of this that that you get a edge to edge OLED display concealing the home button the touch ID integrated into the thing and the earpiece and FaceTime camera somehow beneath them as well. Yeah, I mean that's what we've we've been seeing these reports for some time now. This isn't the first time that that's been suggested. I I, I would think it would be pretty rapid to do it within a year, but you know it's possible, I guess. It's, they they've done things rapidly before. And if you look back at the progression of phones, I mean, I always like to look at history, but um, things look kind of slow in, in, when you look at them in reverse. You know, iPhone 4 came out and then the 4S, and it wasn't until the 5 that they made it a little bit taller and they didn't get to a bigger phone for another, you know, three years. Well, I mean, there, there are, but as you'd say, you, you would tell me, right, if I asked you about this, you would tell me that even though those things weren't visually a big change, that they, they, they seemed like a slow progression, that under the covers there were big changes going on. For example, the, the 4 was 
was was the first of a new design that had the glass back and glass front and the the metal antennae around the sides. It was a change from the 3G language. The 4S, we got Siri, right? With yeah, and there's tremendous power to support it. There's huge growth happening on all kinds of levels with the silicon and with cameras and with all these different things that are changing. And um, what, what I was kind of pointing out is that in the past, uh, for Apple to make changes, it, they were learning as they're doing it. And once you learn something, then you can stay on top of that. And you can, you know, you're standing on the top of shoulder to giants kind of thing. Uh, remember the iPhone 4, how long it took Apple to come up with a white version of it? It, they were supposed to come out black and white at the same, almost same time, and then the white ended up being almost in the next year. It was like alongside the Verizon launch the next spring. Pretty much, yeah. Now they come out with new, new, you know, they have two new finishes this year, the black and the, the shiny black, jet black. So it's a lot fast. I mean, Apple is progressing a lot faster. They're a much bigger company than they were. That was, you know, 2010. In five years, Apple has become a dramatically larger business company. And they're doing so much research on so many levels at the same time now that they are, they are bigger than, you know, HP and uh, Sam, Samsung's mobile division in terms of how much they're investing in some of the stuff and how much vertical integration they're doing. There's other companies that are making some of their own chips, but Apple is designing an entire uh, proprietary architectures for not just the application processor, but doing all this work on it on the side their own camera stuff. Uh, they're building their own security architecture. They're doing a lot of uh, really vertical stuff for a very few number of products. They have three versions of iPhone now, three different models. Mm. And that's kind of it. So, so check me on this for example, because I was, I was thinking about this. They, it feels to me as though they've kind of reached the pinnacle of what they can do with aluminum. You know, we, we've had these transitions in the past, right? We've had where the original iPod was... Uh, plastic was acrylic with with uh, paint on the inside surface, which gave it a unique look. And then they came up with curved edges for the the iPod third generation. And then they went to um, eventually all aluminum with the classic. And then we have we've had a, uh, a an aluminum iPhone, and we've had plastic iPhones, and then glass iPhones. And now we're back with aluminum iPhones. We're sort of reaching the end of that progression, and that's why the, the, it sort of feels like the right time for this glass-rumored iPhone to be next. You know, they, they, they push the limits as far as they can with material science and then change materials. Well, I mean, they are working with different materials. Uh, and if you look at the watch, you know, they're working with stainless steel, and they're working with aluminum, and they're working with, uh, they were doing glass or gold last year, and now they're doing ceramic. And a number of people have kind of suggested, oh, maybe Apple's going to go ceramic next time. Well, ceramic is much heavier than aluminum. The reason they're using aluminum is because it's so light. So to move to an entirely different metal or, or product, um, some kind of composite or anything, whether it's glass or plastic, it would have to deliver sort of a, a variety of things, whether it's the feel or the strength or and just changing things arbitrarily. If you look at how much difference car makers put into their cars, it's only every few years that they really change the body a lot. Usually it's sort of a refinement over and over well, again. Well, the way they do it is they do, a, uh, they, they do a facelift model where they refresh the, the visual characteristics of the outside body panels, but it's largely the same car. And then they do a full refresh, a full model of change. Yeah, and the difference between um, you know, cars and phones is that people replace their phones much more frequently. Yeah, we're so there is more of a pressure to have something fresh and new and, you know, 
obviously different. When you pull out a phone and it looks different, people are like, oh, you got the new one. Oh, yours must be fancy. Mm. And so Apple cap- has capitalized on that in the last several generations by introducing a new color. It's like, oh, you have the rose gold one. That means that you got a new iPhone 5S. And with the jet black, it's kind of like distinctive. And the, the new camera with the features, and that's distinctive. So Apple is very much aware that the shape and the look of the phone, the way it feels, is going to change. It's going to make it more alluring. Um, as far as whether they can pull it off in a year, that that would be surprising to me. But like you're saying, it they're you are building a case for why this is not intentional pun, but you are <laughs> you are building the case for why the case might be built differently. Well, and and thinking about zirconia, which is the the ceramic that we we're talking about, there are a lot of good reasons for using it. Um, you know, uh, aluminum, which is a metal, has, has a weaker bond than ceramic. Right, ceramic is a tougher material. It's a stronger material. Metal can be bent without breaking. The uh, the zirconia ceramic is stronger, although it, it can be a little bit more brittle. But there are methods to mitigate that. the The other cool thing about it is that as a material, it's hugely efficient at dissipating heat. You know, if if you think about NASA and the applications that NASA used for ceramics, they coated the uh, space shuttle in tiles because it was so good at dissipating the heat on reentry. Would it so, dissipate heat or would it shield heat? Because if you're um, reentry, you're shielding the heat from hurting who's inside. There's, there's, I would think ceramic that, would be an insulator, that it would hold well, the heat in more. Not That's why you get a ceramic pot, you put cold stuff in a ceramic pot, it's going to stay colder longer than if you put it in a steel thing that just radiates all the heat away, or radiates the heat inward. It it distributes the the heat too though, so it's dissipating it to the edges. Uh, I don't know. I think it's well. an insulator. <laughs> well, I, I mean, obviously metals are uh, conductive. When you when you hold an iPhone in your hand, you know where the processor is when it's really right. hot because you can feel yeah. it's like this is where the heat is coming from and it's radiating away from that. And so the whole idea three, of a heat sink is three thousand degrees Fahrenheit on reentry has to go somewhere. It's it's not. Just sitting there. Well, so. yeah, but if you if you built the space shuttle or whatever out of metal, all that heat would be going right into the, it, it would, you know, it would basically be lighting up the interior. So you really want to insulate it. I don't know in in a in the characteristics of a small device. I mean, is the Apple Watch going to overheat because it's ceramic? Probably not. No, I think it, it, it doesn't produce that much the- heat. I don't. I don't. You know, heat dissipation is sort of important on mobile devices, but I don't think it's something that would be killed by ceramic. I think the biggest downside to ceramic would be the weight of it because it weighs almost as much as steel. So it would require, they can't just make the same iPhone out of ceramic because it would well, just be really heavy. you wouldn't have to because the characteristics of strength are, are better. Right. If you could change it so that you have a totally different body composition, then you could, you could create a different design that, like you're saying, uses the advantages of ceramic being able to have radio going through it is a primary example of that you know if there's anything we know it's that they take advantage of the the capabilities of the material they're using you certainly the thing it facilitates is just like on apple watch you could do induction charging through it which which right now if you have an iphone there's no place you could stick an induction charger unless you had it able of charging through the screen or something like that i don't know if that's possible (laughs) Or, or if you, that would be desirable, I would say yeah. probably not. But you know that that goes to just another cool thing that they could do with waterproof is is induction charging. So 
Let's talk about MacBooks. We have not seen a MacBook refreshed in a long time. Uh, well, the the Retina MacBook, the the one that Apple is selling the most of, they did refresh earlier this year. But yeah, across the board, Apple has not updated any of their Macs in a year or more. In some cases, like the Mac Pro, hasn't been touched in a while. I think that's really strange. I I, I really think for a, a product like that, instead of making it Obviously, if you have a MacBook or something, you know, very highly integrated, super mobile device, it's going to be hard to accommodate changing the processor out and upgrading it. But on a, on a desktop computer, it seems like what Apple should have done is develop it so that you could have third-party processors. You, know, you could have somebody else putting in a card that you could sell because Apple doesn't want to upgrade them, we, clearly. We used to do that. I mean, way back in the old days, um, I had Power Mac G4s that that had third-party processors. Right. You know, I, I had a single 400 megahertz uh, gigabit Ethernet power Mac that eventually was upgraded to a dual 1.4 gigahertz, which was a huge upgrade. You know, it's... it's yeah, single and, core to two Apple, cores and Apple almost. kind of facilitated that for a while, and then it got to the point where they're realizing we're not going to be able to sell high-end Macs if we allow third parties to service this. But the fact that right now they're not capitalizing any market for selling high-end Macs because they're just not selling the latest processors. And, and at the same time, Intel is not producing, you know, huge jumps in processor technology anymore. So, so is, first happening. of all, is there a market for high-end Macs? Because if they're not making them... It's not a huge market. If you look at the number of Macs Apple sold, they keep going up. But if you look at the, any estimate of the breakdown, the majority of the Macs Apple is selling are notebooks. Right. And of course, the majority of the notebooks Apple is selling are the new MacBook. And, and so the Apple, people Apple is aware of what it's doing, and people look at it like, oh, why haven't you haven't updated the Mac Mini in a while? And it's like, because no one buys it. Nobody wants that. Well, I do, and the people but who I do want it, one. The, the casual people who do want it are um, probably going to buy it regardless of whether it gets updated or not, because they're just buying it to have a, you know, an extra machine. Apple could put a lot of effort into updating all of its Macs, but how much, especially all of its desktop Macs, and particularly the, you know, the Mac Mini and the Mac Pro, they could put an awful lot of effort into making them, you know, up to the minute fresh every couple months, but it wouldn't make a big difference in how many they sold. True. And so they're putting a lot of their efforts into things that are selling. And, you know, what they're really selling now is iPads and iPhones. Mm -hmm. They didn't put a lot of effort into the iPod Touch either because, you know, people were going to buy it regardless. Or those people should buy an iPad. Oh, yeah, or an iPhone. And I've I've seen some of the, uh, the the small numbers of people that do need a high end Mac just going the Hackintosh route. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the only option available to people who want the latest and greatest thing. So that's why I really think that you know the Mac Pro would make a lot more sense if Apple just wants to sell a you know solid design. Why not just build slots on it so that you could build like a you know have an MFI kind of program where you say oh, you know, here's our authorized resellers for buying. The latest GPU and the latest CPU. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds like something that OWC would service. You know, they have they have those uh, aftermarket SSDs for your upgrade your MacBook Air kind of thing, and certainly fits their kind of model. Yeah, that's kind of a puzzle of why they're not working harder on that. I think so, there would also be opportunities in in the server, but Apple is clearly not interested in servers at all anymore. Having completely bailed out of the XServe market. Yeah. Which just goes to say, it's it's a very different Apple today than it was five years ago. Well, yeah. where their money is coming from is completely different. 
So that, that has a big difference in, in the decisions you make. There's a lot of people who talk about Apple just completely divorced from any sense of where the money is coming from. And it's like, well, that's kind of important. You know, it's like asking oh, a car maker, bit. why aren't you making a whole bunch of little tiny cars? And, you know, that's not where their money comes from. Well, and at the time that, that Apple made the Mac Mini, which, which I love, you know, that was the, it was the proof that they could make a Mac that was sub $500 at a time when they were selling a lot of Macs. And the only product that they had besides Macs was an iPod. And now that's no longer the case with the iPad as a computing platform and the iPhone as a computing platform and things like this. They don't really need to make a sub $500 Mac that's current to get people on board. You know, that's, that's not people's entree into Apple's world anymore. Where at right, that time, and the number of new people that you're going to pull into computing, that are not, the majority of them are not going to respond to a PC, yeah. you know, a desktop computer. Um, there's a whole generation of particularly older people, but also, you know, you see just among young people, they know how to use an iPhone. It's pretty easy. But sitting them down in front of a desktop computer, and it's kind of overwhelming. And for a lot of us that grew up with desktop computers, it's like, I don't, why don't you not get this? You know, here's, here's the solution. But uh, as, you, as you bring technology to a broader and broader market, which is what Apple's doing, you have to make it easier to use. And it doesn't matter if there's an installed base of people that are okay with using something more complicated, but you can't focus on those people because they're going to stick around no matter what. And in many cases, those people are going to benefit from going to a simpler technology. Um, in my case, I use Macs because when I sit in front of an iPod or an iPad, I don't feel like I'm able to do as much. But I spend the majority of my time on my iPhone, which is simpler than an iPad. Hmm. So where's Apple going to get the most money from me? Well, it's like selling me a really great iPhone. And there's also potential in selling me a Mac, but I'm not going to buy a Mac every year. So it doesn't need to come out with a brand new Mac every year to... Um, have me ready to buy one when I'm ready to buy one. So what, what is your iPhone? Which iPhone do you use, Dan? I have the 7 Plus. I really, like the, I really like the camera. Cool. That is, that's good to know. And you, you pretty much use it for everything, right? Yeah. I spend a lot of time on it. Do you use I think a that's why my neck is hurting. <laughs> I need do to... you use a Bluetooth keyboard at all for anything? Uh, I have one. Um, I don't use it on the, the phone. Really? What do you use it on? Typing on the phone. So, do you type your your long articles for Apple Insider on the phone? No, I do it on a Mac. Oh, see. Yeah. Come on. I was hoping. I have I have begun typing all of my things for Apple Insider on the phone, but I've been using a Bluetooth keyboard to do so, and I've actually been really happy doing it. I uh, like how much bigger than the phone is it? Like a full size keyboard that you use, or? Yeah, I'm using a Logitech K480 right now, and. The it's it's pretty clacky. It makes a lot of noise, but it's really comfortable to type on. It has a great rest for holding the phone in it. It could also accept a tablet. I just haven't put an iPad in it. Um, and yeah, I think if I had a keyboard like that, I would probably use my phone more for uh, typing because, especially when you're traveling, mm-hmm. carrying a computer is sort of a you know it's weight. Heavy Four pounds of of MacBook Pro with another pound and a half of cables and accessories for it to charge it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my last trip, I forgot my cable, and I was like, oh, well, now I just have a paperweight. Well, and the beauty of using it for your phone is that you just ask the hotel desk for a cable, and they've got one for you. Yeah. So I'll have to look uh, into trying that out. I, it's it's noisy. It's not, uh, it's not an elegant keyboard. It's a little thick, but it's lightweight. So even if it occupies a little space in your bag, 
It's um, it's plenty light for the traveling, and I've been I've been using um, IA Writer as a, an application I use to write Markdown in, and saving it to my iCloud, uh, my iCloud Drive, and then pulling it out of iCloud Drive and putting it into Publisher. I am really liking the new notes. That's all iCloud backed, so you mm-hmm. can make a note and um, access it immediately on your phone. So you can be I can be working on an article, and then I'll be sitting somewhere and I'll think of an idea. And I'll pull up notes, and I can put it right in there. Have you tried the shared note functionality? I haven't used it. Um, Have you shared a note and elaborated on it? No. Okay, I, I did that with uh, Neil last week, and it worked brilliantly. It's using the new iCloud sharing technology, which is the same way that they... I guess collaboration is doing the same thing. Collaboration with iWork apps. But yeah. notes and the new... Uh, Apple Watch activity sharing. They're both doing something novel. It's it's a new technology that Apple came out with. Because before that, when you have when you had an iCloud folder, developers who are integrating iCloud support into their apps had two uh, buckets for you. Basically, one is for everybody, so they could put information in an iCloud bucket that everyone using their app could access. So you know they could have. Um, shared resources that anyone can access that are public and you had your own. So when I do documents in this app, it gets put into my personal sandbox bucket in iCloud and only I can access it. And how sharing works is Apple's now has a third type of bucket where it's inside your personal sharing, but you are sharing access to it. So it's still on your iCloud, but you're giving access to other people which is, you know, kind of a simple idea, but what it enables is things like notes sharing, where I can have a note, I share it to you, you can make changes to it, and you're actually changing them on my iCloud. And so I have immediate access to it. And I believe that's the same thing that the collaboration features that are in beta on the new iWork versions of Pages and Keynote and Numbers, I believe that's how it works as well. That's part of this kind of continuing strategy of, making things better. Because, you know, when iCloud first came out, there were a lot of complaints about developers saying, hey, this is not working the way I need it to, and it's, you know, a liability. It's not a feature for me right now. And Apple came back and changed how things work. Um, And kind of the latest thing they're responding to are developers saying, we need a way to, to share content between users. And so that's what they've delivered with iOS 10. So it seems to be working pretty well. Oh, it's working fantastic. And they had they had some uh, a beta for collaboration years ago. I, I want to say around 2009, 2010. Yeah. And it, it stayed in beta. It never went anywhere. But this time around, I think they really have gotten it right. Uh, the, just the note sharing has been brilliant. Yeah, they, they had a plan for a while. They called it iCloud. What was it? Um, iWork.com. Yes, it was. It was, was going to be a... a well, that was the second iteration. That was the second iteration of it, but it didn't quite get there. Yeah. So over the past five years, a lot of things have happened. And and one of the ones that we're remembering today is the, um, the, the anniversary of Steve Jobs passing away. And you wrote a piece for Apple Insider. Why, why don't you just take us through that piece and, and what's on your mind? Well, I started thinking about um, there's always been a lot of discussion about how Apple would fall apart after Steve Jobs because it didn't have this visionary leader. Um, 
even though all the rest of the companies in the world, they don't have visionary leaders. I mean, who's a visionary leader for Samsung or, or Google for that matter? They constantly shift who's kind of in charge and the, the people well, who are Larry in charge don't seem to be in are charge. certainly visionary. Let's... Yeah, but what are the visions that they're dropping out here? They um, they're they're busy working on extending human lifespan and internet access for all via floating balloons. Yeah, and and ending car crashes by having all cars be automated. Yeah, so a lot of, of that stuff. a lot of that is the very similar. One of the points I made is very similar to what Apple was doing after Steve Jobs left, and there wasn't somebody saying, "Here's the vision," and it's not only. Smart. By, by left, finite. you mean 1984, right? Uh, yeah, Jobs left Apple in 1985 or 1986. Okay. So when Jobs was at Apple, he was kind of learning. He was you know, quite young. I think he was 30 when he left. So here's this guy in his 20s that's running a company that has never existed before, selling computers to individual users. And with kind of finite, there wasn't a lot of other big companies doing, or there wasn't a lot of other successful companies doing that. There were a lot of smaller companies like you know Atari and um, Amiga, Commodore, but it wasn't until uh, IBM jumped into the market in the early '80s and put a lot of weight behind a new design with IBM PC. Yeah, it was 1981. So when that came out, um, Apple was kind of in this contingent with IBM about trying to deliver the future and the what they worked on I, the macintosh came out in 84 but it was actually they thought it was going to kind of come out earlier they thought it was going to be delivered in 82 or 83 um but when they finally delivered the macintosh it was this very um forward-thinking idea of how people would work with computers whereas what ibm was doing was kind of copying the status quo of here's a computer you type on and has all the features of other computers on the market Plus, it has the name IBM on it. Well, you know, initially they were, what, what do you do with the, uh, so, so think back. Before the computer, before the personal computer, there was the IBM Selectric, which was an electric typewriter type that could autocorrect. That, well, it couldn't autocorrect, but it could correct words and had correction tape built into it. And instead of having a, a, a daisy wheel or, um, or, or a huge array of letters that had a type ball, and you could change typefaces by changing the type ball. So the first thing they did was just computerize that. And you could program it, but there wasn't a whole lot of software applications for it. Then came VisiCalc, right? Dan Bricklin and... and I, was it Bricklin? I can't remember, sorry. But, right. uh, but the the idea of, of spreadsheets, which formerly were what they sound like, giant, giant blotters of... of sheets that you actually had to go through and calculate and there were whole divisions devoted to creating the spreadsheet and turning that into something that was now one person's desk one computer kind of thing and uh and you know we had lotus one two three which was a huge way forward for that um and and all of these these things that that converted what were formerly large people tasks into something that could be done at one person's desk and IBM still did that largely through the either the command line or each program having its own interface that took over the whole computer, single task at a time kind of thing. And the Macintosh showed that you could do it differently, could do it with a, a visual representation, um, could do it being able to be switching between tasks eventually. And I think what you're saying about um, 
the reason why IBM's approach worked well with the enterprise is because they were used to doing complicated tasks. So you had people who were experts who could uh, figure out how to use a complex machine to do complicated tasks. Whereas the Macintosh was presented to a totally different audience of people who were not used to using complex machinery. I mean, one of the one of the things it was compared to was a Cuisinart. You know, anybody can use a blender food processor. It's designed to be simple, just like a car. Uh, in in construction, you have very difficult to maneuver devices. You know, like a bobcat or a backhoe or something. You have to be an expert. You have to learn how to use it. With a car, you don't really have to be much of an expert. You just have to learn basic rules of the road. It's very easy to drive. And so Apple was very focused on making car-like experiences that were very easy to drive. You could sit down and it would make sense. And that level of, of kind of minimal competency in technical matters keeps getting better. So when they came with the iPhone, it was this huge jump. Uh, it was actually a lot of the same technology as the Mac, but the key difference was the user interface was simplified to the point where it was just really, really easy to use, to the point where a lot of people made fun of it. Um, the same way that a lot of people made fun of the Mac when it first came out, saying it was a toy and you know it was like too easy for you to use if you were a smart person. Um, but what what both of those things really capitalized on was bringing technology to a broad new audience of people who could not make sense of it and use it. And Steve Jobs seemed to be very good at knowing uh, how to take really advanced technology that other people had developed and apply that in a way that um, regular people could use. And it was evident in the Mac. And then when he left to create Next, it was also designed to be easy to use, but it was doing a lot more um, powerful things underneath. Still a desktop computer. Whereas at Apple, that, that sense of producing devices for people to buy was still there, but there wasn't the same sense of how do we take something and make it really useful and broadly um, applicable to a lot of people. And so the Macintosh kind of just stayed there, and they did a lot of work with other companies, and, and you know, they made a lot of partnerships with IBM and other, other companies to develop a variety of different ideas about how things could be. They were working in all kinds of things, you know, VR and all these different things, but it didn't ever really amount to much. And even their strategy for the Macintosh kind of stayed static for many years. Well, a, a lot of people had a hard time figuring out what the balance is and what the, the transition is from home computing to work computing to enterprise computing. You know, this is something that even IBM was challenged with when, um, when they were working on OS2, for example. OS2 was IBM's operating system around 1990, 1991, 1992, although it didn't really get good until a little bit later than that. But early on, the, pe- people used Windows at home, Windows 3, 3.1. 311 kind of thing at home. And IBM had the idea that you would use OS2 at work. And they made it so that you could run Windows programs within sort of a, a shell at work, the same way that OS10 used to run Mac OS Classic within a sort of a shell um, on, on those Macintoshes about 16 years ago. Uh, and, and that strategy totally fell apart for IBM because what they learned was that people wanted to use the same technology that they used at home in the workplace. They didn't want to use something that was that was more serious or more enterprise-ready. They just wanted to use the same thing. 
And and the industry's been surprised by this time and time again. They were surprised by it a few years ago with the prevalence of the iPhone and people insisting on bring your own device because they wanted to carry their same iPhone from home into work. Um, I would say that iPhones broke into the, you know, I, I was kind of working in IT when that was starting to happen. And kind of the big push was that it was so much better. It was just so incredibly better than both BlackBerry and Windows Mobile in terms of usability. And there were a lot of people that really liked BlackBerry. I don't know anybody that liked Windows Mobile, apart from people <laughs> that were just trying to roll out Microsoft technology. I mean, even even people that were total well, shows for Microsoft were not very ever very enthusiastic about Windows Mobile. Th- those were the guys I was going to point out. The, the people who, first of all, had job security based upon it and could set their admin policies for it. Yeah, so they, they saw, you know, it's kind of like, here's what Microsoft is doing and we want to be part of it. But, uh, you know, apart from that, the devices were terrible. I mean, they were really, really awful. And um, the Palm hardware that ran Windows Mobile wasn't that hideous. Yeah, but running Windows Mobile on it was, you know, huge. Yeah, you're taking something lovely that runs Palm and putting Windows Mobile on it. So Yeah, I mean, I had a Palm phone. And it was, you know, they're okay, but if you really felt like you were running into a wall of what was possible on this device just because you after you install like five or six apps it starts to not work anymore um you have all these kind of problems between things and it felt like you're running a an old macintosh from the 80s that it's a pretty good characterization a big big part of it um we we think about the devices you know what what were the big things that steve jobs launched it was the iphone the ipod first and the iphone and the ipad but what what really comes out when you think about what Jaws was doing is this continuation of figuring out the technology that was there and how you could apply it and how you could sell it in a way that benefited people and how aware you were of trends about what people were doing. And when the 2000s started, Apple started investing tremendously in mobile devices. So it was laptops and it was iPods. And those two things started converging together to the point where you could have more and more uh, technology from a desktop Mac kind of device in a small iPod style, you know, product um, that resulted in iOS and, and the iPhone and eventually the iPad. But it was really a continuation of the things they were working on and looking at how do we make things more mobile? How do we support these with technology? How do we develop this technology incrementally to get to where we want to go? So it's not really so much about the introduction of a specific hardware model or how many times that's refreshed or how many times the form factor has dramatically changed. It's this continual um, incorporation of technologies that work and make sense, things like Touch ID that make security so much better and also enable things like being able to have your bank information on your phone and make a purchase without worrying about your phone getting stolen and suddenly anybody else can be you and just take all your money. So there's an important um, direction and trajectory for technology. And Apple is aware of so much of what's going on, and they have the market power to do a lot of things, that they're clearly operating along a strategic advancement. Whereas if you look at a lot of Apple's competitors, they're just kind of saying yes to everything. And they're not really accomplishing any things that they're doing. I mean, for the last year or two, we've been hearing so much about VR, now it's going to change everything. And I've, had, I've done some VR experiences, and it's kind of a fun thing, but people are not going to wear this all the time. And it makes a pretty big part of the population sick to put it on. So that, you know, there may be some benefit to it, but it's not the next iPhone. Well, it's, it's domain-specific where the benefits really are, right? 
you know, if if you're doing yeah, but it's being sold as being like this huge. This is where everything's going. Oh yeah, it's, it's being sold. I, I was in a meeting, and and the fellow who was from a VR company told me that that we were going to enter a world where everyone wore these all the time. That they they carried a set with them everywhere, and it, it doesn't pass the smell test yet. It's it, it's ridiculous, and the benefit isn't there for it. There was a time, sometime in the eighties, when every PC was kind of pictured with a microphone, and it was going to have speech synthesis. Oh, and, my TI-99 4A had speech synthesis. Yeah, and it was like this huge big thing, and it was going to be, you know, everyone in the future was just going to talk to computers, and they weren't going to type on a keyboard. But that did never happen. Oh, and we're getting there. No, no, we're getting there. Well, I mean, yes, but they were talking about that 20 years ago. Well, and, no, so sometimes technology ago, shifts in a way that it can get somewhere, but there's so much technology that had to happen before that. And another example is pin computing. In the early 90s, this whole thing about pin computing, and it's going to be everywhere, and we're going to not, not have keyboards anymore, and it's, it's so much natural, so much more natural to write with a pin. And you write, and it, you know, they mix it up. And they delivered really good handwritten recognition, re- recognition technology. And there are companies um, in the last decade I've seen that there's these pins you can buy that you write on special paper, and it actually does recognition in the pin, you're thinking about like Anoto and some of those ones. Um, I don't know if that's the same product, but most of the yeah, pen number of stuff is actually done by the technology. same guy. He just keeps going from company to company. Yeah. It's it's but the same guy over and over again. He did it for Logitech, then he did it for uh, some of the other ones after that. It, it, same dude. He just yeah, keeps but, it, but it's it. a, a good example of a technology that isn't really going to stick, even if it seems cool. It's not going to change everything. Well. Uh, it's entirely possible that we get to a voice-first kind of interface. Uh, you know that they, we're creeping towards it with Google Home and Alexa and Siri, and what happens next is voice commerce, and we're getting to that with Alexa and ordering stuff. Um, but we're, we're it's early days. It remains to be seen if it's novelty or if it catches. But that's kind of where things are creeping towards. Is yeah, that we've seen a number of examples of technologies that were promised as being this is going to change everything and everyone's going to do it this way now, and it didn't really happen. I mean, if you look at like 3D televisions, and then it was 3D phones. 3D uh, touch screens and refrigerator doors. Yeah, I mean, th- there's a lot of things that are being thrown out there that uh, just because you can throw something out there doesn't mean it's going to change the world. And um, it's interesting, Tim Cook keeps talking about how AR is going to be a bigger deal than VR. This idea of layering experiences on top of what we're seeing. And, you know, basically using this handheld computer that we all have now with a camera on one side of it, you can hold it up and look at a variety of things and get information on it. That seems very useful. Putting, you know, installing that onto a fabric pair of goggles and sticking it right in front of your face. I don't know. Maybe it could be fun to play some games on that, but that's well, not what we're going to be doing. I, I think. I think. Hold on a second, because I want to say this, and you can tell me what you think. But augmented reality, we think of it classically as being things visually layer, layered over the reality that we're seeing in front of our eyes. I think it can be broader than that, and I think that if you have, say, the Apple earpods in your ears and are talking to someone and you're getting extra information that supplements what you're talking about as you're speaking about it, that is also augmenting reality, but it's doing so in a way that is less intrusive than having something in front of your face. Right. Right? If I'm speaking with you and I get a prompt in my ear that reminds me that you used to work in IT and you had this experience with Windows Mobile and I can refer back to that. Now I have specific information that's augmented my ability to communicate with you. 
It's not the classic AR that we talk about. It's not the AR people think about when Tim Cook says it. But I I would argue that it's still an augmented reality. Yeah, I think AirPod is is very much an example of... There's a reason why they're pushing that. Because if you have an earpiece in your ear all the time, you can respond to things like you're talking about. You can ask Siri questions and get information about things. Um, And the watch is another example of, of a wearable device that... Uh, you're getting information in sort of a, um, what's the word, less overt sort of way. You don't, you're not sitting there looking at a it's screen a, yeah, it's or sitting in front of a computer. You have it on your wrist and you can immediately, within a couple of seconds, see you know, typically the time, but also you see what's on your calendar coming up and you see what, what your body status is. And you know, there's all these things that you can present in a very quick sort of way that when you start linking those things together, you know, your small screen in your pocket, the headphones in your ears and, you know, a device on your wrist, you can start doing really interesting combinations of those things. So the things that Apple has been working on in terms of continuity and um, super mobility in terms of battery, having small devices that can run a long time on a battery, those are all combining to what, what, like what you're talking about, augmented reality in a, a sense that's not just playing graphics on a video, but it's sort of kind of omnipresent technology. So what would you say is, is if, if you had to tell someone, just in a, in a brief way, what, what, is, what is the lesson of Steve Jobs and what, what should we learn from Steve Jobs in the five years that we've been without him? Well, I think Apple, um, before Steve Jobs died, he put a lot of effort into sort of kind of codifying what what worked because he had so much experience and so much vision of what was happening in the tech industry for his entire life. And I think he also had a unique way of looking at things. So kind of combining those things together and, and there's an entire university inside Apple that teaches people how to think like Steve Jobs. And one example that I pulled out in that article was this ability to define objectives, that saying no was really an important part of design and engineering. And when you say yes, it sounds like you're being agreeable, but what you're really doing is not committing to anything. And so when you hear Microsoft and Samsung and Google, and they always say yes. Microsoft's whole thing about there's no compromise here you know, this is a no compromise surface experience. Right, it's, it's a device that does everything. It's a laptop and a, you know, a tablet at the same time. And it's like, well, you can't have both of those at the same Who's time and have to be good at both of them. And, um, you know, things that Google is doing where they're saying, yeah, you can have this and you can have that and all the freedoms of Android. And it's like, well, those freedoms are also limitations. And what Apple has done and, and quite... Uh, um, the examples, particularly since Steve Jobs passed away, there's a lot of scrutiny into, you know, is the next iPhone 5, is it going to be something that Jobs would have done? And when iOS 7 came out, and it's like, I don't know if Jobs would have liked this. And it, you're, there is some question. It's like, would Jobs have liked iOS 7? Because his, his kind of visual appeal, what he built in Next and what he built when he came to um, Apple with the early Mac OS and the Aqua look, and what was on the first iPhone and iPod, iPads, was a very kind of over, um, a very slick looking, very photorealistic appearance. 
And iOS 7 was a stark break from that. It was very different from what had been done before at Apple. And it was probably not what Steve Jobs would have, would have um, laid out. However, it did reflect the way Steve Jobs looked at things in terms of having things be ultra-simplified to the point where your, your brain isn't like looking over the dis- display and trying to interpret what all these things mean. It's just very clear. Here's a button, and it doesn't have to say it's a button. It's just you know it's a button because you've seen it on the web that when something is not a color, it's something you can touch, and it'll do something. And the, the kind of using, using underlying technology like, motion, like blurs and animations and things like that to very simple, in a very simple way back up the sense of what's happening on the screen. So you have a very sense, a strong sense of what context is. So when you when you flip up control panel, control center, you have sort of a overlay that you understand that you're looking at a fictitious representation of a thing that's flipped up over your screen. That when you dismiss it and it goes down, you you understand where it is and how you can get back to it. Whereas if you look on other devices, like you when you turn a Microsoft tablet sideways, it just sort of like glink glink turns on again. There's not that sense of flow and motion and effort because they don't care about the details. And so using, it's kind of like this juxtaposition of really rich technology and complex ideas to create something that's very simple and very intuitive. That's very Apple and it's very much Steve Jobs. But it requires saying no to a lot of things that don't really matter even if other people think they do. So you can say yes to the things that do matter, that are really creating your objective. And a lot of companies have a hard time saying no to things. I mean, you look at Samsung's tablets. They have a tablet in every size, every tenth of an inch, from you know, 5 inches to 12 inches, 13 inches, or whatever. Apple has three t- tablet sizes now, and they sell the most tablets in the world. They sell more tablets than anybody, but they only have three form factors. So it's, and, and that's a big part of their success, because they don't have to they don't have to support 14,000 different models of Samsung phones. So it's much easier to deliver software to update them all. It's much easier to deliver things like uh, CarPlay or HomeKit that work with all the devices Apple sells because they don't sell a tremendously huge variety trying to figure out what people will buy. They confidently say people will buy this one because it's the right size for a tablet and people will buy this larger one because it's, it's you know the size of a more of a desktop uh, pro environment with the, you know, the big iPad pro, but there's not just like a whole bunch of let's throw a bunch of stuff out there and see what will sell because we'll say yes to everybody. So I think um, one of the strongest things that Apple has, has learned from Steve jobs and has continued successfully is this ability to say no. And Apple's executive team keeps repeating this idea that, you know, we don't, Tim Cook would say that he's proud that all the devices they make will fit on a table kind of thing. And the idea behind that is there's a lot of things we could be doing that we're not going to do because that would be a distraction and it wouldn't, um, wouldn't make money, but it also wouldn't further the, it would slide on their pace of what they are able to do and the more important things that they're able to do. So, you know, Apple could make printers, they could make standalone cameras, they could do a, a lot of variety of things. The things that, for example, Samsung is doing. Samsung is making everything. But it's slowing down their ability to really be 
innovative in a way that matters because all they've ever done in smartphones is copy Apple and before that copy somebody else. And a big part of being um, innovative in a creative way is saying no to a lot of distractions so you can focus on what's important for moving things down the road. And that's something that Apple's always been good at, but it's also been something that Steve Jobs has always kind of uh, been involved in why that was happening. And I think now Apple is figuring out how to do that without Steve being there. Are you still there? All right. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't sure if you'd left. Well, I didn't leave. It's just that we've had a lot of connectivity issues where you've been bouncing in and out, and I've been trying to follow along. Oh, sorry. So I just wanted to make sure that that I didn't interrupt the end of your thought there. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's let's wrap this up. Dan, thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. Where can people find your readings and read more from you on the internet? I'm writing for Apple Insider, of course, and then um, I'm on Twitter at Daniel Aaron, E-R-A-N. And we're also, um, I'm putting photos into uh, our Instagram. It's Apple Insider underscore official. You can check that out. And we're putting up pictures of things the iPhone 7 camera can do and uh, other examples, products, uh, retail stores, things like that, anything that is of interest to uh, Apple's ecosystem we try to put in there. Excellent. So, yeah, I want to encourage all of our listeners to, to check out our Instagram feed. It's, uh, in, it's Apple Insider underscore official. And uh, also, if you've enjoyed this show and if you've enjoyed Dan and I talking, please feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. We do appreciate it. This has been the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor. And if, if Dan Dilger comes and joins us again next week, we'll be sure to talk about it then. <laughs>